If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The Six Wives are just such a fascinating story. It's like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives because it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England, everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. When it comes to juicy historical sagas, they don't come much better than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch, But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? Hello and welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. I'm Ellie Cawthorn and with the help of expert historians, I'll be peeling back those layers of myth-making to take a fresh look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and the history of England. Today, we're talking about probably the most iconic of all Henry's wives. A woman who's gone down in history as a bombshell so alluring that Henry changed the course of the nation in order to wed her. And to act as our bellwether for Henry VIII's erratic decisions and ever-changing moods, each episode, I'm joined by Dr Tracy Borman, Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. It's impossible to overstate Anne's importance. But in terms of the importance of Henry's reign, she was enormous. And to help us try and uncover the woman behind the stories of sex, scandal and obsession, Tracy and I were joined by Dr Owen Emerson, a historian and curator at Hever Castle, Anne's family home. As the author of three books on Anne and her family, Owen's the perfect person to introduce us to the woman who would go on to become Henry's second wife. She rose to fame meteorically at the court of Henry VIII. And I think she is so famous because she quite literally changed the course of English history. There is no one quite like Anne Boleyn. I think she was a remarkable individual, and I don't think it's any surprise that we are talking about her today. And in fact, Anne's already made an appearance in this series. As last episode, we focused on the woman she would ultimately replace, Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. But before we delve into Anne's story in more depth, let's have a quick recap about what was happening at the English court when Anne appeared on the scene. So it's 1522 when Anne is first recorded at the English court. Now, Henry has been married to Catherine of Aragon since 1509, since the very beginning of his reign. They have a daughter, 
but that's it. Despite numerous pregnancies and stillbirths and short-lived children, they don't yet have a son. So in Henry's eyes, this is starting to be a bit of a problem. Much as Catherine is an ideal wife for him in every other respect, he needs that son to secure the Tudor dynasty. And that is starting to make him quite nervous and quite restless. And have something of a roving eye, I think, as to who might be able to provide this son if Catherine can't. So who was this young woman that made such a splash in this febrile royal court? What do we know about her life before she appeared in Henry's orbit? So Anne Boleyn, we think, was born between 1501 and 1507, I, uh, towards the earlier of those dates. She was a knight's daughter, She wasn't a nobody, she was a somebody. Anne comes from a rising family, the Boleyns. Her mother is Lady Elizabeth Howard. She comes from one of the premier noble families in England. And her father, Thomas Boleyn, is sort of a third generation gentleman on the make, as it were. She is born, we think, at Blickling Hall and grows up at Hever Castle in Kent. Thomas is a humanist, her father. He believes in educating his daughters as well as his sons, and he affords her an exceptional education. That continues at the court of Margaret of Austria in the Low Countries, the Netherlands today, and then at the court of France. And Anne soaks up the Renaissance spirit. She's incredibly cultured. She's also very pious. She has an incredible understanding of current thought. And she's also a reformist. So there is huge depth to this woman. She's not conventionally beautiful, but she is full of wit, style and substance. And in March 1522, Anne, armed with that bucket load of charm, wit and style arrived at the English court, ready to make an impression. She takes part in a court pageant, playing one of seven virtues. Now, it proved quite fitting the part that she plays because uh, she plays perseverance. And of course, she is going to have a long courtship with Henry VIII. But she makes an immediate impression, not necessarily on Henry himself. We don't know how he reacts to her really until about four years later, but certainly on the court This is a woman like no other. She's had this incredible education, this experience in in France for many years, and it gives her the edge over the provincial-seeming ladies of the English court. She has this incredible sense of style, charisma, self-confidence. There's nobody like Anne Boleyn when she appears at the English court. But it's worth mentioning here that Anne wasn't the first Boleyn girl to catch the king's eye. No, she absolutely isn't. I mean, Henry isn't famed for having many mistresses, but one of the mistresses he does have is Anne's sister, Mary Boleyn. Now, precious little is known about their relationship. We know that it happened because Henry himself spoke of this. He was once asked if he had had sexual relations with both Anne's sister and mother, and he replied, never the mother. Some people believe that her children were Henry's. He never acknowledged this fact. But yes, slightly awkward. But the the net gain on Mary's part wasn't particularly fruitful, shall we say. Anne was after something a bit more substantial. And we should mention some other members of Anne's family here too, as they were to play a really significant role in her story. 
Let's start with her father, Thomas Boleyn. He is incredibly ambitious for his family, for himself, and he's also a very gifted diplomat. He has perhaps the finest command of French at court, and that is where he does most of his business. Another key player is George Boleyn, Anne's brother. They are almost inseparable. They are like two peas in a pod. I should think they would have been rather insufferable to come across because they were so gifted in the arts, in religion, in everything. They were those siblings that everyone loves to hate, I should imagine. This idea of being the people that everyone loves to hate is one that comes up again and again when you talk about the Berlins. Because the family were certainly divisive figures at Henry's court. Well, they were very popular with Henry himself. He very much esteemed Thomas Boleyn, as Owen was saying. Thomas had had this fairly glittering diplomatic career. And Henry really took a shine to Anne's brother, George, as well. Uh, He served him in private and in public. So the Boleyns are popular with the king, which automatically makes them deeply unpopular with anybody else who wants to get in favour with Henry, because this is a vicious, backstabbing court. Everybody's looking who's in favour, who's not, how they can get one over on their rivals. So it's inevitable. If you get too close to the sun, you're likely to get burnt. The beginning of Anne and Henry's courtship are fairly murky in the historical record. But what evidence do we have about the early years of the relationship? You may be guided by the love letters that Henry bombards Anne Boleyn with. They're mainly sent to her home at Hever, where she retreats often during this time. And very unusually for Henry, these letters were handwritten by the king himself. In them, Henry describes himself as Anne's most loyal servant, struck by the dart of love and desperate to find a place in your heart and affection. I mean, Henry goes to extraordinary lengths in these letters. He is like a lovesick schoolboy. He puts Anne's initials in a heart at the end of the letters. He sends her extraordinary gifts. He even kills deer and sends them to her at Hever, uh, hoping that she will think of him when she eats the flesh. Uh, I mean, this is the stuff of... Dreams for some people and nightmares for others. So it's clear that Henry was very emotionally invested in this romance. But what about Anne? Without her replies to Henry's letters, what can we tell about how she felt about this all? Was she caught up by the romance and affection that the king showered her with? Or was she purely a canny political operator, playing the king to perfection? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? There is so little of Anne in her own words, especially in regards to her love for Henry, that I'm always really cautious here. But I would argue that Anne is actually in the driving seat. We sadly don't have her replies to the letter, but we can infer what she is saying by his replies. Often she doesn't respond to his letters, slightly awkward, but I think she does that for a reason. Initially, I have a feeling that she was not interested. She retires to Hever and she tries to deal with the situation from afar. But when she realises that Henry is not going to give up, I think she lays down the terms for what is going to have next. She will not be his mistress. And she asks him essentially to put a ring on it and a crown on her head. 
I think Anne is in the driving seat here. I think it's possible that she grew to love him. I don't know that it was an immediate thing. And I'm just always wary about sort of locating that without her consent almost, without her being explicit about it. She was an incredible politician. She is her father's daughter. So I think she saw an opportunity and laid down the terms for her acquiescence in a way. Anne had set her sights high. Apart from the inconvenient fact that he was already married, Henry was the most eligible man in England. But he was not Anne's first potential match. When she comes back to England from France, it is essentially to broker a marriage match between her and her cousin, James Butler. This isn't a popular suggestion. It's made by her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, and is being negotiated with Cardinal Wolsey, who will become her great rival, shall we say. And that sort of peters out. We then have a really interesting period where Anne is trying, again, to broker her own destiny. She falls in love with Henry Percy, the future Earl of Northumberland, and perhaps is reaching a bit far here. And the love match between them, uh, the promise they have to marry each other is broken off by Cardinal Wolsey. And she is sent again to Hever in somewhat in disgrace, where she is said to have smoked or fumed at this breakage in her path. She tries to forge her own destiny. And when she has very little choice with Henry, she's the one laying down the terms. I think it's entirely consistent. And there, Owen mentioned one of the key recurring characters of this story, Henry's chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey's early attempts to thwart Anne's love life would not be easily forgotten, and he was to become a thorn in the side of Anne and her family, an obstacle in their rise to the top. Wolsey Anne's the Boleyns are set on a collision course from quite early on. And certainly Wolsey and Anne, thanks to the fact that the Cardinal has thwarted this love match between Anne and Percy. And Anne does not forgive easily, and neither does Wolsey, to be fair. But I think Wolsey actually underestimates Anne. He thinks she is just another one of those women who has caught the king's eye, her star will soon be descending once more and we can all just get back to the way things should be. Of course, that doesn't happen. And I think Wolsey himself hasn't fallen under Anne's spell like so many other men at court. So he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get the hold that she has over his royal master. And that has fatal consequences for Wolsey because he doesn't realise the extent to which Anne and her family are sort of dripping poison in Henry's ear against Wolsey because they know their main rival to getting what they want is, is Wolsey. And he does pay a very high price for that. He calls her the night crow, <laughs> according to some accounts, which I absolutely love. Clearly, he despises this woman. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And it's these polarized opinions of Anne that make her so fascinating. To some, she was a paragon of wit and charm with an irresistible allure. To others, a schemer, deceiver, and slippery night crow. Reconstructing personalities from centuries ago is one of history's most tantalising and elusive tasks. And when it comes to tantalising and elusive, Anne Boleyn takes the crown. So I asked Tracy and Owen to try and characterise this je ne sais quoi that Anne clearly possessed. Love her or hate her, what might it be like to be in a room with Anne Boleyn? I think we would all be looking at her all the time and we wouldn't quite understand what it was about her that we were drawn to. But she would be incredibly engaging. She would speak her mind. She would often annoy her friends as well as her enemies. But everyone would still be talking about her. We'd be talking about her for months afterwards. Indeed, we're sat here 500 years later, absolutely fangirling all over her. She, she's just one of those magnetic, really hard to pin down people. And I just think it was her wit, her ability to challenge, um, but also her incredible kindness at times. You know, if she was in your inner circle... She would fight for you to the end. And one of those people is her brother, George. And their relationship is so beautiful, really, and shows what a a generous individual she was as well. I think you're absolutely right in that Anne was, was loved and adored. She was also disliked and despised. But what she never was, was ignored. And I think if she were to walk into this room now, you're right, we wouldn't be able to take our eyes from her, we'd be listening to her. Apparently, she had these these dark eyes, which invited kind of conversation. And she was a complete one-off. Certainly, Henry had never met anybody like Anne before. He didn't know what to do with her. I think he's not used to hearing the word no. And Anne is saying that a lot. And this is her masterstroke, whether or not she intends it to be. Because Henry is a hunter. He's a natural hunter. He wants what he can't have. Anne remains out of his reach for all these years. And that just drives him on. 
She plays Henry like a finely tuned instrument from the very beginning. What isn't clear and why we're still so obsessed with this story is, does she mean to? Either way, it works an absolute treat. And so he becomes absolutely obsessed. He can think of nothing but setting aside Catherine and marrying Anne Boleyn. One key element in this delicate dance of courtship was sex. The question of whether Henry and Anne had sex might seem purient, but sex and power were inextricably connected in Henry's court, something that Anne was well aware of. Again, she played her hand like a pro, refusing to have sex with the king until she had a guarantee of marriage. Well, it was another masterstroke on Anne's part. And I think she didn't. I mean, they they certainly did some stuff. We know from the letters there is some physical contact, but she's not going to risk her reputation and her position and throw away everything on a thoughtless pregnancy. And she knows what makes Henry tick. And Henry falls for it hook, line and sinker. He's frustrated by her refusal, but his desire is just stoked by it as well. She doesn't go far enough to to ruin it all. No, definitely not. She is also incredibly pious. You know, she does believe in the fact that sex should, you know, take place within a marriage. Something that's important to remember in the story of Henry and Anne is that this was no whirlwind love affair. It was a courtship that lasted for years, as Henry struggled to extricate himself from his marriage to Catherine. And during that time, Anne was going for broke, pushing herself forward not only as a mistress, but a rival queen. And not everyone was convinced that the gamble would eventually pay off. Her family, interestingly, we do have some evidence that Thomas, her father, was initially reluctant. I don't think he could see that this would actually come off. You know, this is unprecedented territory. Another member of her family that was certainly not in favour of the marriage was her uncle, uh, Thomas Howard. They did not like each other at all. And I do not think he wanted Anne, his outspoken niece, to rank higher than him. They have a tempestuous relationship. However, I do think that we can see that when Anne makes that incredibly bold decision to say, these are my terms, I will be your wife and not your mistress, they back her. you know, the key family members do back her. They are advocating for her. It is the Boleyns that go and negotiate uh, with the Pope, perhaps foolishly. They go to Rome to try and resolve the great matter. So yes, they are very much fighting for her. After all of this back and forth, negotiation and diplomacy, things finally begin to shift. And Henry's once empty offers of marriage began to look more serious. I think there's an acknowledgement on Henry's part. Okay, she's not going to give way. She's not going to be my mistress. I need to step up to the plate. And of course, he has other reasons for doing that. He needs a son. And that is a huge reason for Henry. And so from 1527, I think he's promised Anne marriage and he's going for it. He's going to deliver that. Of course, he doesn't know how long it's going to take, but he is absolutely committed to making Anne his second queen. As Henry's bitter divorce battle with Catherine rumbled on, Anne took a tactical step back from the limelight. You could say visibly 
she's off screen. She's often actually at Heaver. I think this is something of a ploy. Uh, she is to be not seen and not heard. She's not very good at that and quite often will return to court at the most inopportune moments. There is a, a secret hearing of the marriage in 1527 and then later Cardinal Pan Campeggio is sent over to hear the king's reasonings for an annulment on behalf of the Pope. Uh, he arrives in 1528 just after Anne has survived the sweating sickness and uh, the Blackfriars trial is held in January 1529. Anne is very much in the driving seat here. And when Catherine pleads her case to Rome instead of this court in England, Anne is the one who gives the king all of the ingredients he needs to pursue his break with Rome. Wolsey has failed. In fact, all of the king's ministers have failed, and it is Anne who provides a solution. And what she does is really quite radical. It's daring, it's bold, and it's dangerous. She places heretical texts into the king's hands. These are texts that have been burnt by Wolsey. Uh, the lives of those who own them are threatened too. And one text in particular, William Tyndale's The Obedience of the Christian Man, provides all the answers. She shows the king the unthinkable route to getting out of Rome, to getting out of the marriage. And that is by showing him that in the Bible, there is no pope. That in the Bible, it says that kings are next to God. And I mean, this is completely radical thinking. It's even pushing the boundaries of Anne's own reformist thoughts, I think. But it is the solution that works. Whether through political opportunism or genuine religious curiosity, engaging with the ideas in these radical religious texts was an incredibly dangerous move from Anne, especially considering the fact that, at heart, Henry was no radical. Because Henry ultimately breaks with Rome, he ushers in the Reformation. We often forget what a conservative Henry was in matters of religion. This is deeply uncomfortable for him. He has been raised a, a very devout Roman Catholic, and I think he stays a devout Catholic, not a Roman one, after the break. But it's all deeply uncomfortable for him. It's Anne pushing him along this path of reform. And she lights a fuse for Henry. She shows him these books and particularly plays to his vanity. You know, she's telling him nobody should be in charge of the king apart from God. You know, get rid of the Pope. He's, he should have no hold over you. Henry loves that, good Roman Catholic though he is. He loves the thought that actually he could be an emperor. He could be above the Pope. So, and absolutely preaches to the converted, but she's pushing Henry much further along the path of reform than I think he would have ever have gone on his own. And Anne's flirtation with reformist ideas also raised the hackles of her long-term enemy, Cardinal Wolsey. This is all heresy in Wolsey's eyes because he is a, he's a cardinal. <laughs> he, he is a high-ranking member of the Roman Catholic Church with, it is said, ambitions to be Pope himself one day. So this 
is anathema to him. These radical ideas that Anne and her supporters are starting to circulate around the court. Wolsey would have been horrified by all of this. And it just makes his rivalry with Anne even more intense. So Wolsey was clearly a stumbling block in Anne's rise to power. But he wouldn't be in the way for too long. Wolsey is dealt with very swiftly indeed. Cardinal Wolsey is sent away in disgrace. And there is this rather unseemly moment where Anne arrives at York Place, where Cardinal Wolsey once operated the country from and sort of walks all over his grave because she is now going to be occupying his property. He escapes the executioner's block purely because he dies on his way to the Tower of London. It was a ruthless downfall, very much like the downfalls he meted out himself. With Wolsey out the picture, who else would Anne have to take on or take down to secure her place as queen? Well, Catherine of Aragon being the obvious, and of course she serves Catherine, and so that's got to be uncomfortable. And we know their relationship is difficult from quite early on. Anne is establishing almost a rival court, really. She um, has her own apartments at court and places a dilemma at the feet of those who come to court. Do you go and see Anne Boleyn or do you go and see Queen Catherine? And Queen Catherine, she is a force to be reckoned with. She is a powerhouse at the English court. You don't take her on lightly. And it takes somebody of Anne Boleyn's strength and political guile to really bring Catherine down. This is ruthless, it is uncaring, and the Boleyns rise with, you know, blood and torment on their hands, really, uh, or certainly Henry does. And by the beginning of 1533, some seven years after she'd first embarked on a courtship with Henry, the Boleyns' political battling was almost over. Anne finally seemed to have secured her victory. Queenship was within her grasp. We know or believe that Anne and Henry engage in their first wedding on the 14th of November, 1532. I don't think this was a, a huge thing. I think this was, as was commonplace in the early modern period, a, a promising, uh, which was sufficient between couples, followed by a consummation that was a marriage. And I think it is at that point that they have sex. If you do the maths to when Elizabeth is born, it's around Christmas time. So I think Anne falls pregnant fairly quickly. And then they have this excruciating period of two queens at court because Henry is certainly not free of Catherine yet. It must have been excruciating for both women at that time. Catherine is then sent away from court, and Anne is de facto queen. But Anne really has the whole establishment <laughs> against her. She also has a whole country who beloved their queen, Catherine, to contend with. She has everything resting on her shoulders, and the weight must have been crushing, to be honest. In her rise to the top, Anne had left a trail of ruined reputations, prospects and careers in her wake. So now she was queen, Anne was faced with a massive task. She had to rehabilitate her image and unite a hostile country who had widely branded her the Great Whore behind her. And when faced with a challenge like that, there's only one thing to do. 
launch a charm offensive of military proportions. A big part of the campaign, I think, to make Anne acceptable, even revered by her subjects once she has married Henry, is her coronation. Now, this is one of the greatest PR stunts in history, even by Tudor standards. Henry pulls out all the stops. Anne has to be presented as his lawful wife and queen. So he goes to town. Of course, there's a flotilla of barges. There's the refurbishment of the Tower of London to accommodate Anne before her coronation. There's this magnificent procession through the streets of London. With all this symbolism, Anne is presented as almost a kind of Virgin Mary figure here on earth for Henry's subjects to not just accept, but to worship. He is determined. But of course doesn't necessarily go according to plan because much as he might like to believe it, Henry can't just change hearts and minds overnight, make people forget the love that they bear his first wife, Catherine, and accept this interloper, the woman who's known as the great whore, the concubine, as his lawful wife. And so all along the processional route, the intertwined initials of H and A can be seen, but it's turned to parody by the crowds who shout ha ha and kind of read out those initials and it all goes a bit wrong for them. So it's not going to be that easy. Henry can throw as much money as he likes at it. People aren't going to accept his new wife overnight. So while the public might not have been too happy about the marriage, what about the couple themselves? Anne and Henry had finally got what they'd fought so long for and sacrificed so much for. So, were they happy? Well, I think they were in the very early phases. But Henry soon starts to... Maybe cool-off is a bit strong, but there is this real hunting instinct in Henry, as I mentioned. And there's a sense that once he finally has Anne, oh, she's just a woman like everybody else. He's put her on this pedestal for seven years and now he has her. And I think he starts to lose a little bit of interest. There is a rumour, it may be nothing more than that, that when Anne is pregnant, getting very large now, that Henry's eyes starts to wander. But Anne is not a woman who is prepared to accept that. So I think probably behind the scenes, there are fireworks. And what attracted Henry in a mistress, that sort of feistiness that Anne had, it doesn't attract him when she is his wife. He expects something different. He expects a Catherine who knows how to deport herself, you know, in a very queenly way. Anne is very outspoken and she's not prepared to give up her opinions just because she's now Henry's wife. I completely agree. I think Henry can't put Anne back in the box that he had hoped she would arrive in. She has been a a key instrumental player in getting herself on the throne. And I just don't think he found it particularly attractive that she had a taste for power. She was good at it and really struggled to sit back into that passive seat that a queen consort was meant to occupy. He really only wants one thing from her now, and that is a son. And shortly into their reign together, it looked as if all Henry's wishes might finally come true. In early 1533, Anne developed an insatiable craving for apples. And soon after, she was proudly flaunting a heavily pregnant stomach. 
She gave birth on the 7th of September, 1533. Anne broke the news to the world with the Tudor equivalent of a press release, with S's later added on to the word prince to indicate that it was not a male heir that had been delivered, but another princess, Elizabeth. And you might think that that is the beginning of the end for Henry and Anne. I don't think it is. You know, he is known to have said that we can have a living daughter now. You know, thank God we can perhaps have a a living son. He does cancel the jousts that are planned for the birth of a son. But I don't think this is the beginning of the end uh, for Anne Boleyn. Their relationship is sunshine and storms. They argue, they berate each other, and then they make up wonderfully. And I think that characterises the next couple of years. It's intense, yes, it's volatile, but there is still hope there. And indeed, that hope looked set to be fulfilled when shortly after the birth of Elizabeth, reports suggest that Anne fell pregnant again. Frustratingly, the historical record leaves us guessing as to what happened in that pregnancy, but no child ever arrived. It must have been a bitter blow for Anne. I think what sets the seal really on Anne's doom is her failure to give Henry the son that he so desperately needs. And it's always really tricky when looking back through the original sources because there's so much gossip and hearsay and conflicting information. But I think we can be fairly sure that Anne suffers three miscarriages. It is a stormy relationship, as Owen says. They have these huge rows and then these passionate reconciliations. But the rows are becoming more frequent. And there are reports that Henry is shrinking from Anne in private. This is the woman who was driving him to distraction with frustrated lust. And now he can't bear to be in her company. And this is also the time when Henry has started to look elsewhere. And Jane Seymour and her family are on the rise. Anne had set a dangerous precedent, rising to power as an alternative love interest for the king. And she must have been painfully aware that if she could supplant Catherine of Aragon, what was to stop someone else supplanting her in turn? They frequently argued and rowed about the other women in Henry's life. We have fairly good evidence that Anne wasn't like Catherine. She didn't just sit back and turn a blind eye to these affairs. She was very much fighting her cause. She found it disrespectful. So I I think a lot of their arguments stem from... Anne's disappointment, perhaps we should say, and and also Henry's. It's an incredibly pressured environment, particularly the year of 1535. There is increased risk because of Henry's marriage to Anne of an invasion from Spain, united with France. There is famine, there is crop failure. And as the historian Dr Lauren Mackay says... Anne has been a really costly investment for Henry, a massively costly one. And Anne is in an impossible situation because her destiny, her future fortune, is resting on something she has absolutely no control over, and that is her ability to deliver healthy children. And I feel terribly for her as I 
do for Catherine in that their fates were determined by something they had absolutely no control over. I think that's right in that Anne had this brilliant mind. You know, we, we often forget that. She was an absolute intellectual powerhouse, but she was judged by the failings of her body as they were seen at the time. From Henry's perspective, I think during this kind of period after Elizabeth's birth up until 1536, so really a period of two and a half years, he is frustrated. And I think he feels kind of cheated because he's overturned the entire religious establishment. He's courted rebellion. He knows that he's losing the love of his people. Also, he could marry Anne Boleyn. And what has he got from it? What has she delivered? A girl. That's not enough. I think he feels bitter. He feels let down and disappointed. And Henry is not a man who deals particularly well with disappointment. After fighting for seven years to get married... Within just three years of wedlock, things were really beginning to unravel. And in January 1536, Anne was struck by a double blow. A personal tragedy that was used as evidence of her failure in her role as queen. It does seem when Anne suffers that final miscarriage in January, on the same day that Catherine of Aragon, her erstwhile rival, is buried in Peterborough Cathedral, that same day... She suffers a miscarriage, and that does seem to have triggered something in Henry. Now, one of the most controversial aspects of Anne's whole story is who pulls the trigger. Does Henry instruct Cromwell, his faithful minister, to get rid of Anne Boleyn? Does Cromwell plot the whole business of Anne's downfall himself, as he later boasts to the imperial ambassador? We don't know. I personally think Henry is instrumental in all of this. And I think he knows he wants out of this marriage. But perhaps he's not thinking of an execution. Perhaps he's thinking of an annulment. And unlike Cardinal Wolsey, Cromwell was to prove a much more slippery adversary, much less easily dispatched. Remember, this was the man who'd already engineered the break with Rome and the downfall of one queen to give his king what he wanted. But as Henry's whim changed, so did the target of Cromwell's machinations. He and Anne were at loggerheads. They were very, very dangerous rivals. They'd started out as allies. Cromwell was seen as Anne's creature. He'd helped her to the throne, effectively. But Anne and he had fallen out over the Reformation. They were both in favour of dissolving the monasteries. But Anne, to her credit, believed in social reform and she believed that the proceeds from the monasteries should go towards charitable causes, not all be diverted to the king and his favourites. Cromwell disagreed and quite violently disagreed. But Anne made it clear, as she said, she wanted to see his head off his shoulders. So this was going to be a battle to the death between Cromwell and Anne. And in a way, Anne's fatal mistake was making an enemy out of Cromwell more than what she did in her marriage to Henry. I completely agree that I don't think the course that was taken would have happened had Anne and Cromwell not feuded. I think that determined her ultimate fate. He was the architect of her demise. I think he planned everything around the threat that was posed to him by her. But I think ultimately Henry commissions it. 
and is completely willing. I think he is brilliant at believing his own lies. So in his quest to outmaneuver Anne, what was Cromwell's opening gambit? I think the trigger point is a conversation that Anne has with Sir Henry Norris at court. I think at this point, Cromwell knows that Henry wants out of the marriage, but Anne is slightly reckless on this occasion. She has previously admonished a musician, Mark Smeaton, for looking at her, and she reminds him that he is her social inferior, typical Anne. And on this occasion with Norris she makes a very unguarded comment. She is essentially engaging in the art of courtly love. She is treading a fine line between ingratiating herself to Henry's courtiers and flirting with them. This is really difficult to negotiate when you are a queen. And she makes a comment about him looking for dead men's shoes. If aught but good were to come to the king, you would look to have me. So she's essentially saying, you fancy me, don't you? But of course, that sentence, dead men's shoes, she's talking about the death of her husband. And because of the Treason Act, which is essentially there to protect the very marriage that she is in, she has imagined the king's death. Now, in the Treason Act, that is explicitly prohibited. It's essentially a thought crime. But Anne has gone further than that. She has spoken of the king's death. And I think that is the moment that Cromwell understands that he can make this a a final end for Anne and that that will solve his problem. Anne had once thrived in the chivalric rituals of the court that Henry had created. But now these same rituals were weaponized against her. In working her usual charm with these flippant comments to Norris, Anne had made a fatal miscalculation. And once this misjudged moment had been transformed into a treasonous offence, it became much easier for other accusations to be piled on top of it by Anne's enemies. And these claims were much more salacious. I firmly believe Anne's only crime, if you like, is not having a son. I don't think she would for a moment have contemplated adultery. She had fought hard for her position. She knew how the court operated. She would never have taken that colossal risk. And I think it's a cruel twist of fate that her closeness to her brother was twisted into an accusation of incest. And so none of this would stand up in a court of law today. It would get nowhere near a court of law. The whole thing, the whole case, was nothing more than gossip and hearsay. Little shards of evidence that Cromwell collected from Anne's ladies primarily. But that's it. There's no hard and fast evidence. Oh, and cited was the fact that Anne wrote to her brother to tell him that she was pregnant. Well, and, you know, what's in that? It's entirely natural thing for a sister to do. So none of it stands up. And I think if Henry had thought about it or allowed himself to think about it, he would know that too. According to law at the time, accused persons were deemed guilty until proven innocent. And despite her best attempts at defending herself, Anne's trial, along with her brother on the 15th of May, was a foregone conclusion. Some 2,000 people were in attendance, including a raft of hostile familiar faces, one of whom was Anne's own uncle, Thomas Howard. And many of the accusations against Anne did 
didn't even make sense if you examined a timeline. Anne was supposedly conducting a sexual affair with Henry Norris while she was still in seclusion in Greenwich just weeks after the birth of her daughter. To find yourself accused of such outlandish claims must have been bewildering for Anne. Anne has been on probably the worst emotional roller coaster you could possibly go on. She has arrived at the tower not knowing what she is accused of. She has essentially fed her own fate by talking to the ladies of her chamber about why she thinks she's there. And those little truths have been spun by Cromwell into the most appalling lies. She has battled alongside her brother for her life at her trial. And they perform so brilliantly that everyone watching who knew that this was the king's will, believed that they would be acquitted, she does not go down without a fight. They both conduct themselves incredibly well, and particularly Anne, who changes the whole mood of the courtroom. And she wins over a hostile great hall at the Tower of London, and she does so brilliantly. And, and you know, people think, well, she's going to be acquitted. Of course she isn't. George, it's a slightly different case, and I think he kind of goes out all guns blazing. You know, he does speak out, and he speaks out about you know, his beliefs, and he uses this moment to say what he really thinks. But, it, of course, it's to no avail. Regardless of Anne and George's fiery and eloquent defence, the jury knew which decision they must reach to please the king. Anne and George were both sentenced to death. Anne, by burning or beheading, dependent on the king's wishes. Henry chose beheading. But how had it come to this? Why did Anne have to be killed at all? Why couldn't she be banished from the court like her predecessor? There is a slight mystery surrounding the downfall of Anne Boleyn. And that's why Henry didn't simply have the marriage annulled. Why did he have to kill her? And I think the answer to this lies not with Henry, but with Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell couldn't let Anne live. I think Henry would have been content to pension her off, to send her to a nunnery, just have the marriage annulled. Cromwell had to get rid of Anne permanently. On the 17th of May, 1536, George Boleyn and the four other men accused of adultery with Anne headed to the executioner's block. Their sentence of hanging, drawing and quartering was commuted to beheading. Large crowds watched as they ascended a high scaffold on Tower Hill. Interestingly, Sir Henry Norris speaks out for Anne on the scaffold. You know, he speaks out in her defence and his family, his survivors are treated with the greatest favour and respect by Anne's daughter Elizabeth as a result of that. On the same day that Norris and the others met their fate, Anne's marriage to Henry was declared null and void by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, rendering her daughter Elizabeth illegitimate. It's almost impossible to imagine how Anne must have been feeling in those last few days as she heard reports of her beloved brother and the others heading to the executioner's block. She may well have heard the exclamation of the crowds as the grisly scene unfolded on nearby Tower Hill. Everything she had achieved, power conjured from thin air, had come crashing down. And now there was no way out of the wreckage that remained. 
I think she knows she's going to die. Her brother is dead. The men accused with her are dead. She knows this isn't a game. She has sworn in front of the jailer, William Kingston, that she is innocent. And she's done this uh, in front of a priest. She has done this at her last confession. I think this is one of the most poignant and revealing insights into this whole affair. She's doing that on the peril of her mortal soul. She wants people to know that she is innocent. I think by the 19th of May, Anne is reconciled to death. She had meant to be executed the day before, but the executioner from France had been sent for. He hadn't arrived in time, and therefore, rather excruciatingly, she is told that she will die the next day, having prepared herself for death. And as dawn broke on the 19th of May, 1536, Anne's execution date had finally arrived. William Kingston arrives at around 8am to take her from the Queen's apartments, which had been refurbished for her coronation. How sickening that she was put in those jubilant cells for her imprisonment and is led out to what is supposed to be a private execution just on the north side of the White Tower. I think... Actually, no one believes that this is going to happen because there are so many mistakes on this day. They don't have a coffin prepared for her and they leave the gates open so that approximately 2,000 people have gathered to watch her die. This isn't private by any stretch of the imagination. But she holds herself with incredible dignity and composure. She delivers what on the face of it, appears to be an entirely conventional scaffold speech, praising the king for being an amazing prince and wonderful husband. How could those words leave her lips? They left her lips because she wanted to protect her daughter and her family. But she doesn't do one thing that is supposed to happen in that moment. She doesn't confess her guilt. She says that she accepts that she has been found guilty and will speak nothing against it. And that would have spoke volumes to those in the crowd. I think this is one of her finest performances. She holds herself with incredible dignity and composure. And she has to do unthinkable things. She has to kneel down, hold herself up high, and wait for a man to strike her head off her shoulders. And she doesn't flinch. I hate this part of her life. How could you revel in it? But it is her finest performance, I think. And it speaks volumes about her as a woman, as a person, that she was able to meet her end with such dignity, I think. It had been a long battle for a short reign, a tragic end for one of the most compelling personalities in English history. Anne had played the game of power like a master, but in the end, she was outmaneuvered, defeated by her rivals and her own biology. Shortly after the cannons rang out to signal that Anne's execution was complete, Henry boarded a barge and set off to meet Jane Seymour. Within 24 hours of the beheading, the pair were secretly betrothed. 
So how was Henry capable of such cognitive dissonance? Did he actually believe any of the accusations concocted by his right-hand man and believe that he'd been justified in sending the woman he had once obsessed over to the executioner's block? I think he convinced himself brilliantly. I think he knew at heart that Anne was innocent of all of this, but he always, always believed in his own publicity and he had to be seen to do so. I think what's really telling, though, is when we look at how Henry behaved during Anne's imprisonment in the Tower and the care that he took to arrange her execution, going to great lengths. Now, this might sound like not a very big concession, but you know he sends for a swordsman to behead her because that's the much swifter, kinder death. Why would he bother if he really believed that she was guilty? I think he was feeling a bit of an attack of a guilty conscience at that stage. Harlot, feminist, backstabber, queen, power player, victim. In the centuries since her death, Anne Boleyn has been branded all of these. But how should we remember her today? I think we should remember Anne as a woman determined to forge her own path in an era that was defined by the patriarchy. I think we should remember her as someone bold, courageous, outspoken. And I think we should celebrate what she achieved. She met a horrific end, and we often focus on that, but she achieved so much as well. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her, to remove her from his life. I think actually her her end tells us a lot about who she was and why she had to die. It's impossible to overstate Anne's importance. And I think she's so relatable. We can absolutely relate to what a modern woman she seems, actually. She doesn't fit the mould of a typical Tudor queen consort. So that's, I think, part of the reason we still talk about her. But in terms of the importance of Henry's reign, she was enormous. Without Anne, I don't think there would have been the Reformation, the break with Rome, a revolution in government. We wouldn't still be talking about Henry VIII if it hadn't been for Anne Boleyn. Next episode, we'll chart Henry's attempts to rebuild his reign following his catastrophic marriage to Anne and follow the story of the next woman to navigate life with this ever more irascible king, Jane Seymour. Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr. Tracy Borman and Dr. Owen Emerson. Owen's a curator at Hever Castle, a historian and the author of The Berlins of Hever Castle and Becoming Anne. And Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator of historic royal palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. If you enjoyed learning about Anne Boleyn, then head over to historyextra.com forward slash six wives to watch a brand new video with Owen Emerson answering some key questions about Henry VIII's second wife. There you can also find plenty more articles, podcasts and other content on Anne Boleyn. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden and Ben Hewitt. It was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Josette Reeves.